When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I am one of the few writers of my generation um, that can say I spoke to Doom. Um, you know, I had an opportunity early in my career in 2003 to speak to Doom, um, <laughs> which in retrospect is is tragic irony. I think hip hop will always be a void for the people. Hey everybody, I'm Reggie Williams, founder and CEO of Ambrosia for Heads, and with me I have Jake Payne, our editor-in-chief, and together we are Ambrosia for Heads. Welcome to our What's the Headline podcast, first edition of 2021. Happy New Year to everyone. Uh, it is um, the beginning of a new year. I think a lot of people are looking forward to a better year. It's already started off with some craziness that we won't dive into because I'm sure everyone has heard, and uh, we're going to keep it hip-hop today. Uh, but before we get too deep into 2021, we got to go back and talk about some of the l- things that happened in the last week of 2020. Uh, 2020 was a challenging year for all of us. And in the hip hop realm, um, it got really, really crazy in that last week. And so we lost uh, a few heroes. Uh, we lost um, Ecstasy from Houdini. We lost Shabadoo, uh, also known as Ozone from Breaking. And we lost MF Doom. So we're going to talk a lot today about um, those guys, particularly honing in on Doom, who's a huge favorite for the site, for our readers, for us. Um, but yeah, we're going to kick it off. We, we're, we're going to be thoughtful about our approach. There's been a lot about Doom out there, um, you know, and we're just going to try and talk about it in a way that we think is relevant and celebratory, but also informative of the man who is so complicated. Uh, and, and, and meaningful to all of us. So let's start with the music. Um, I first bought Operation Doomsday in, uh, t- in 1999. Um, it was a fat beats. Uh, it was either 1999 or early 2000. Uh, I lived literally down the streets from Fat Beats in New York. I lived at um, 15th and 6th, and Fat Beats was like on 8th and 6th, right above... Um, the greatest papayas joint uh, was in the corner of like eighth uh, and sixth. And, you know, at the time I was running a site called newrules.com, which is really the precursor to AFH. Um, and, you know, there were some records, there's some releases that I wanted to get, but they weren't on CD or, or cassette or anything like that. So I'd gotten a record player. Uh, one was Mountain Brothers, um, their album, um, uh, I forget what it's called. They had Cell Galaxy. Volume 1 or something? Cell Volume 1. They had yeah. Galaxies and Paper Chase and a bunch of dope joints. Um, I got um, People Under the Stairs mm. and Operation Doomsday was another one that fell into that category. And you and I um, listened to an excellent podcast by John Kermonica of the New York Times featuring Stretch Armstrong, Bobito, and Dante Ross. And uh, Bobito obviously had Fondland Records, which put out Operation Doomsday. And he said he'd only pressed up 2,500 copies, so now I'm feeling dumb for like not having my copy anymore. 
I don't mean to correct you, <laughs> but one thing I know about uh, you know, Cool Bob Love is he is a, a fact fact stickler. As yeah. uh, I think he said, forty five hundred. Forty five hundred. Yeah. Uh, and it might be it might be different vinyl versus CD, but I know what you got is very rare, and there's a lot of yeah. people walking around that say, "Yo, I got Operation Doomsday when it dropped," and nah, I'm gonna need to see receipts. So I yeah, believe yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but what what was your first experience with Doom's music? That's a really good question. And it's an answer that I can't necessarily place. Um, You know, I am 37. So, you know, I was 15, 16 years old when Operation Doomsday dropped. So I will tell you it was that. I can't front like, you know, I was there for KMD and, you know, had a bootleg copy of Black Bastards or anything like that. But it was right around, you know, the Dead Bent singles and stuff like that. you know, I was just consuming a lot of, uh, you know, 12 inch vinyl hip hop and remember learning of this guy. And it was in that ensuing year between 99 and 2000 that, you know, somebody kind of really hit me to his story, which, you know, 20 years later, I'm still learning things about. I think any Doom fan, especially in his passing, is still learning things that we didn't know about the author, the man. Yeah, yeah. So I know you 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 have uh, you're a student uh, of hip hop and have covered Doom extensively over the course of your career. You know, uh, talk to me about what what about his musical career, about like uh, how he got to start, things like that. Yeah, I mean, I am one of the few writers of my generation um, that can say I spoke to Doom. Um, you know, I had an opportunity early in my career in 2003 to speak to Doom. Um, <laughs> which in retrospect is, is tragic irony because the reason I spoke to doom um, was a remix project had come out, you know, kind of in the area era when ninth wonder did like, you know, um, his, his spin on, you know, the black album and a lot of great producers, danger mouse with the Beatles white album. There's a joint called Nostradumus and it was basically taking Nas uh, acapellas and placing them with, um, you know, Doom Productions. So in 2003, um, which I know is a few years after Nostradamus had come out from Nas, I spoke to Doom and I have it on tape. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to digitize it yet for, you know, today's conversation. But in a weird way, in 2003, I'm talking to Doom about Nas, (laughs) which kind of answers your question in a weird way, because what's interesting about Doom and Nas, and Doom had told me that they had met in passing early in his career, but he didn't have a a tremendous memory of it is doom and Nas are both derivatives of third base in a way. Um, You know, obviously search stepped in with Nas helped him secure the deal at Columbia Sony with faith Newman and everybody. But I think that doom and KMD had a much deeper relationship with third base. And I was actually, you know, reading in in my friend, Brian Coleman's book, uh, check the technique volume two, which, I encourage any diehard hip hop fan to support those books. They're, they're liner notes for a lot of classic albums throughout the eras, but doom and MC search go back to the mid eighties. Um, you know, doom had bounced around New York city a lot with his family. Um, originally born in the UK in England, came to New York, had lived around Manhattan, Tribeca to be specific, Mount Vernon. I'm told, you know, parts of Brooklyn. And then he had this long Island, um, you know, heritage too. And Doom and his brother Subrock spent a lot of their youth in Long Beach, which is a part of Long Island that borders Queens. 
And right there you had, you know, Rockaway, Far Rockaway, which is where MC Search is from. So um, you had these two guys and, you know, they meet in the mid eighties and then doom kind of makes his, his break on the gas face by third base. He's in the video. Um, you know, Prince Paul produced the track and uh, Don Newkirk, we had Paul and Newkirk on this podcast. Newkirk of course is dropping his game show host voice and introduces it to doom at the time known as Zev Love X from KMD. Um, and, and through that association, through the success of that single, KMD lands a deal at Elektra and by 91 puts out their first album, Mr. Hood, which I know, if I'm not mistaken, is, a, is an album you, you have a lot of appreciation for. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, Doom's history, there is a decade plus before Operation Doomsday that, that ever happens. And what's really interesting too about the origin story as I was digging is, um, you know, Doom's first association with hip hop music began as a DJ. Um, there's a really great interview that we supported on AFH that uh, a, another fellow journalist, Peter Agustin, Agustin, um, had done in 2003. And it's like an hour long conversation with Doom. It's funny because it's a year before mm, Food Drops, but it's kind of as a lead up to that album, but also getting Doom's, um, you know, time and thoughts over those last three years. And he talks about DJing in third and fourth grade. So you got to figure, you know, nine, 10 years old. And what's so interesting is he was using some of his father's records and attending early hip hop block parties around New York. But he talks about hearing, you know, really um, important records like Tom Tom Club, Genius of Love, which would have been a year or two or less old at the time, if you do the math the way I do it. Um, and he heard those instrumentals and at the same time was watching, um, you know, classic records like Otis Redding's Tramp get played, you know, joints that like Salt and Pepper would sample. So he has this vocabulary at a, at a pre-adolescent age of, you know, what's going on with hip hop, but also what's going on in terms of the sacred crates of hip hop. And then you have to look by the late eighties of like what New York DJs were doing with these blends like Ron G and Kid Capri. And you can hear that style unravel itself on KMD's music and later dooms. I mean, you look at one of, one of KMD's biggest singles from the second album, Black Bastards, which came out before it was shelved. Um, what a Brother Know is what I'll call it. And it's got a Jody Watley sample to it. Um, so Doom spoke about, like, from this young age, he discovered that there's certain records that make the girls move and there's certain records that make the hip-hop heads, you know, or, or to gender it a little bit to make the dudes move. And he kind of incorporated that dichotomy um, throughout the music career that followed. Yeah, that was an interesting thing. It was, you know, the beats like that, you know, um, like that Jody Watley beat and you know, rhymes like Dimes and mm -hmm. he's using Anita Baker and like, yeah. you know, um, he had these soulful R&B tracks, but he's also got incredible wordplay uh, that's appealing to, to the dudes. And um, in a lot of ways, you know, he's often juxtaposed against what was happening in the late 90s um, on the mainstream level, which was Bad Boy, um, and, you know, how polished that sound was. But they were often using a similar kind of formula. Because when you yeah. think about what Biggie did, uh, or even like a mainstream someone like that, they had these classic, like, R&B samples from the 80s, 
um, you know, with like dope wordplay. Um, but you know, the sheen was a bit different on those bad boy joints. Doom kept it like gritty and dirty, and chopped it up um, in a in a more um, I don't want to say artistic, so I don't be judgmental about it. But he chopped it up in a more complex way, whereas Puff just kind of like let the loop like play out, um, and it was received completely differently. You know, so um, you know, and and to your point about him starting off DJing and also graffiti because he was a very talented artist. Um, I want to read a quote from that article you mentioned because he really wasn't even thinking about rapping. Um, he thought about it more as kind of like a, a wordplay thing. Um, so he had a quote, he said, I didn't know it was going to be such a popular thing. It's something we used to do for a side hobby to keep your mind fresh. Word games. You might be walking down the street playing with words in your mind. So you throw them back and forth and words that run just come to you. Something we did as a hobby, like practicing thoughts, brain exercises, word searches and things like that, studying different languages, where words come from. Uh, so, you know, uh, he said he wasn't even really thinking about it as something to make money. It was just a way to kind of keep his mind fresh. And so uh, it's, it's, it was an, it's amazing. And throughout his career, uh, you know, obviously he used it as a means to support himself and his family. Um, but it also seemed like he always put the art first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And it's interesting, you know, in the, in the Peter Agustin interview, um, he's talking a lot about the paintings, which, you know, the artwork, a lot of the doom artwork that we saw over the years was things that he did and everything was so deliberate, but also, I mean, and this is true to hip hop style, doom has this quality of, of being, of being very complex, but also being very effortless. Um, you know, from what I've heard from Stretch and Bob and the John Karamanica podcast, you know, he wasn't somebody that did a lot of takes of songs and joints like Dead Bent were actually mastered off of cassette. You know, Doom wasn't interested and obviously there was a budget aspect too, but he had this, this same like graffiti writer's approach of, I got to get this done. I got to get this done in a finite amount of time. And it's really how it's going to be received above everything else. Yeah. So why do you think he was received um, the way that he was, you know, tremendous underground following, um, you know, real dedicated hip hop heads when he was using a similar, similar formula to like uh, that bad boy sound, but flipping it a different way. Yeah, I mean, I'm so glad you said that because it's something I didn't realize at the time and it's something that kind of jumped out at me over the last two weeks, but you're absolutely right. I mean, and it's funny because, um, you know, Dead Ben is an Isaac Hayes sample. Uh, Jay-Z, you know, samples Isaac Hayes on Reasonable Doubt, but it's how they flipped it and what he does with that canvas. Um, so it's almost like, you know, two different schools of thought are doing the same thing on two different frequencies. And, you know, that was such an exciting time, even though I wasn't, you know, I'm not like you, I didn't, I didn't have doomsday in my possession in 99, but I vividly remember, you know, you mentioned the mountain brothers and, and I, I vividly remember the underground had something to say at that time. I mean, you know, obviously it had been around for years, but it was what, this group of talented individuals that didn't have the means to do music videos, weren't getting play on a lot of radio. What were they doing with the same tools as Puff, Mace, Wyclef, Missy, so on and so forth. And yeah, I mean, Doom was just really brilliant with that. And on top of it, you know, I mean, we're going to talk about the mask, but 
Um, you look at Slick Rick with the eye patch. You look at Flav with the clock. I mean, there are videos from Operation Doomsday, very low budget New York City kind of camcorder type joints. But Doom had this ability to create a vision of himself in the listener's mind. <clears throat> I mean, quite obviously, the you know, even more than the mask, he's creating characters. You know, we see that with, um, you know, the artwork, you see that in the lines, you see that with the various samples from different, you know, comic, you know, shows and stuff like that. And then he, he took it and ran with it, um, obviously, with Victor Vaughn and, and King Jidra and, and different stuff like that. Um, but he made it, you know, really captivating for the listener at a time when if you weren't doing that, you know, you're just another dope, you know, you're just another dope MC on wax or on CD. And he really launched himself off of that, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, so just going back, you, you talk about that underground scene and you're right, there have been a, a few, I think, um, surges of underground movements, you know, um, I'd say the first was probably in that 97, 98 period, you know, we had that, uh, Ninth Wonder had done that, that post where he talked about the day that um, Nas's um, It Was Written was released and the De La, um, was it Stakes Is High? Was it Stakes it? Is High, um, yeah. And he's, he, he attributes that as the first, as the, the first kind of like split in hip hop because up until that point, you listen to rap music and you know whatever came out you just you, you listen to and it wasn't like categorized in any particular way maybe there was east coast and west coast but there wasn't this division between like mainstream and underground but um nas who had been part of what i think people would consider underground at the time because he was a, like ill lyricist and like had credibility um uh, maurice from the producers he created with all those things um made in, in a lot of people's minds at that time a hard left in the polished sounds of like if I rule the world and like you know track masters and track masters and stuff like that. Then you got um De La Soul with Dilla and like you know um you know common and being like super gritty uh but still doing it in a De La way. So it was the first kind of schism in hip hop. But um in that, that John Camonica interview, I believe it's Barbito uh, it's either Barbito or Dante Ross who talks about how, um, you know, that 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 really the block it really kind of blossomed in like 1999 or so, and that's when you've got Rockets coming up. Um, you've got um, you know Fat Beats was a real scene. Like you walk into Fat Beats and as a hip hop head, you felt like you were home. There were just records everywhere. It wasn't like a huge shop. You walked in, um, and to the left was like a DJ booth, and typically. Um, there was somebody spinning, often it was Eclipse, who was the, the resident DJ there, but also he like um, curated and like, um, you know, took care of the inventory and stuff like that. Um, you had a wall in front of you uh, with like kind of the new releases and in the middle you had like almost an island in front of, of the corrected, but an island of records where you find like the other stuff. Um, and it was just a vibe, you know, it was up on the second floor um, and it felt like a home. And I think it was the physical manifestation of the underground movement that was happening at the time. Um, another instance of the underground movement kind of like burgeoning was, I'd say the 2006-2007 era of like Blue and Exile, like, uh, you know, Blow the Heavens. Um, yeah. I think that was a resurgence. And then um, the biggest, in my opinion, was like 2009 or so uh, with the emergence of J. Cole and Big Crit and Kendrick and Currency and 
you know, um, all these guys who have now become you know, huge superstars and with the, the internet explosion and the ability to like download stuff and um, you know, playlisting and stuff like that, I think we're in an ongoing era of it. But uh, in many ways, the beginning was that late 90s period and that's when and Doom kind of ascended. When you talk about his characters, um, there was a fantastic interview and I'll try and remember to link it, um, Red Bull Music Academy. Uh, Chairman Mao talked to Doom for um, almost an hour and a half, and Doom broke down his philosophy of his characters. You know, he says that um, the reason why he used those characters is because he always thought of you know, it like, um, like novels or films. He wanted to use different characters to convey complex storylines. Um, and, you know, he, he thought that a lot of rap was just too straightforward and basic. He wanted to really convey dense stories and the only way you can do that is through multiple characters you can't just all be first person at one time and so he broke down um his characters and you know, first of all he said zeb love x was was a character you know from kmd and we'll get to like uh, gas face and stuff in a minute but um a lot of people think that doom was his initial character and you know um he went back and after like the tragedy that they talk about um created this to its end, but he said that actually all of his personas have been characters from the beginning, starting with Zeb Love X. And he said that he and Subrock had already planned to do solo albums after Black Bastards, and he was going to be Doom, and Sub was going to be another character. Um, hmm. And so he worked to develop the Doom character and make it distinctly different from the Zeb Love X character. Um, and in, in, in doing so, he, he had a different rhyme style and um, you know, cadence, and, and obviously demeanor and philosophy and you know took the Barbito and Barbito got it when he heard it and said you know wanted to sign him. So the way he described Doom is Doom was the misunderstood villain. He was perceived as evil by the establishment but had a heart of gold, you know, um, and he, he calls him a Robin Hood type, someone for the people, but the establishment is always going to be against him. Victor Vaughn, uh, he says was similar, but he was younger. He was like an 18, 19 year old and he said whippersnapper. Uh, like a know-it-all kid who disagrees with Doom on a lot, but also looks up to him, so really like a younger brother. And for King Ghidra, um, he's uh, from outer space. Um, he says he channels info to Doom, gets the message to Doom. He's not on Earth. Um, he said he's reptilian, 300-foot, three-headed dragon. And it's literally the Ghidra. I don't know, like if you like so when I was growing up, like uh, they had the, the the King Kong versus Godzilla films and stuff like that, and it was yeah. the, the special effects are like it's almost like hand puppets. You know what I mean? Like, um, and Ghidra was one of the characters who fought Godzilla. So King Ghidra is is a direct um, you know derivative of that, just like Doom was a derivative of, of Marvel's Doom. So that's the way he he um, described it. And he said Zeblo the X never disappeared. He was just in the background, and Doom always existed too. He was just waiting for his moment to appear, and he always considered it to be an ongoing story. Mm -hmm. That's ill. I mean, yeah, you can you can hear how much television and comics meant to him, especially you know TV comics, um, like in in the conversation with Peter, and he he down to the episode and i've heard a lot of people that knew doom say that he was just this sponge of information and had so many different influences and it's wild to me too even though he grew up all around new york there's all these accounts of doom 
in his teenage years, cutting school and going into the city, which you have to imagine, you know, mid eighties, New York was just a playground of, of sights, sounds and smells. And I love the way, especially on Operation Doomsday and the next two or three albums that followed, you can hear that feel, um, at least as I see it in documentaries and all of that of, you know, grabbing from from everything. And, uh, you know, as we talk about the pain that Doom endured um, in the early and mid 90s, sometimes I think that like he captured a level of innocence that he found in his adolescence through TV, through hip hop through comics, whatever, and held on to it and kind of surgically unraveled it in a way into his music career that allowed him to take solace in that. I know that's a, that's a giant leap, but um, I've listened to a lot of doom in my life, especially over the last two weeks. And I've kind of come to that conclusion. Yeah. So before doom, there was obviously KMD. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, uh, what was your take on, did, when did you get into KMD? I got into KMD after. So um, Doom puts out Operation Doomsday on Fondalum. Um, you know, the whether it's 2,500 or 4,500, they sell out. And, and the way that Bobito describes it, it wasn't like, a, you, know, you know, hot off the presses, they're gone. When the pressings ran out, they shook hands. Doom kept his masters and kind of went off into that night. And I think to your point, around 99, 2000, you know, underground hip hop was thriving, especially overseas. So Doom was able to repress the album with other people as he did throughout his career, especially with that album. So in the early 2000s, 01, 02, he partners with Big Just of Company Flow and a friend of mine, Fiona Bloom, and they put it back out. They put um, Operation Doomsday on subverse music through Doom's metal face. And I don't know if you remember like Sandbox Automatic. Do you remember these like? Yeah, of course, that was a Fat Beats uh, uh, e-commerce album. Yeah. Right, you know, yeah. Smiley. Yeah, I mean, there was, and and so I was growing up in Pittsburgh, and around that time had moved to Philly, um, and I would buy a lot of the hip hop that I couldn't get in the stores that way. And there would always be like the illest promotions where if you bought this album, you'd get an autographed poster, you would get a you know a forty-five like tons of just Easter eggs. It was the ultimate fan experience, especially for a non-New Yorker. So anyway, I bought something that gave me, <clears throat> excuse me, a bootleg of Black Bastards, you know, or a re-release of it. So I heard Black Bastards before I heard Mr. Hood, which is an experience different than probably a lot of our listeners and, and probably you too, because I know you were of age in 91. Yeah, but I didn't, I didn't hear Black Bastards until like many, many years later, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you heard Mr. Hood in the early 90s, right? Yeah, I actually wasn't like, I wasn't like, um, I didn't get into KMD until uh, the, until recently also. You okay. Know? Um, you know, uh, well, recently, I'd say seven, eight years or so. Um, yeah. And it was post-Doom, you know. Um, sure. I, I went back and rediscovered his catalog. My first, my first experience with uh, KMD or with, with uh, Zevel of X was, was Gasface. Yeah. That I experienced real time, you know. Um, and, um, you know, that was ill to me. Like, and that was, um, that was representative of um, the hip hop that I think was so influential on Doom. You know, a lot of people now compare KMD to, they say they were kind of like a natural extension to native tongues especially mm-hmm. with that De La sound with Long Island you know, the, yeah Long Island um, but the but the, the, the intricate use of samples 
um, the use of a lot of dialogue uh, from like you know 50s 60s 70s type like shows probably the the racial stuff too of like black identity and what does it mean and yeah yeah. but also doing so in a not in your face in a happy go lucky way but just dropping in the gyms Uh, and so uh, you know gas face uh, you know uh, with third base uh, was sonically like that very much you know uh, that kind of sample use and, and those kind of drums it sounded you, you could easily have put Dela on that track and, mm-hmm. and it would have sounded uh, in place um, so that was my first first taste and I didn't really connect the dots until later on you know um, but that was my first taste of KMD uh, but Black Bastards um, you know is definitely one of my favorites in their catalog um, uh, you know I thought that album just sonically is amazing. Um, you know, I, sent, I know I sent you a song of the day yesterday from it. Um, and, you know, um, that to me was, um, well, let's talk about, let's, let's talk about like what happened with that album. You, you, well, if I can say something too, like, and I'm not disagreeing with you because I think we're going to agree on this, but, you know, to me, the hip hop underground, you know, really, um, you know, there's records that come out in the eighties. I'll, and I, you know, again, my age, I didn't live it, but from what I've read and the experts I talked to, you look at like ultramagnetic MCs and you look at a joint like ego tripping um, and, and all that comes with critical beatdown, and that kind of paves the way to the underground. And there's other records, um, especially in New York, that come out or influential to a lot of different folks and kind of build this community. But, you know, we're talking about Bobito and Stretch Armstrong. I think their radio show, which, if I'm not mistaken, launched in 1990, was where the underground lived. And and what's so interesting about that is, you know, they're there for the onset of KMD, um, you know, at least in terms of releasing records. And they're also there for the transition in 97 into Doom. Um, but yeah, KMD comes out of that. And you, you wanted, I'm sorry, I just wanted to kind of get that point in. Um, yeah, I want to talk about the, the, the controversy around Black Bastards. Mm-hmm. Um, so that album ultimately became banned. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'll, I'll set the table because I actually did a paper on this, like um, in law school. Um, I, I, I did a paper uh, about like the controversy the music industry was facing. Back then, they were under intense pressure, um, you know, by... Um, uh, the, the moral majority of the parent parental music resource center, uh, PMRC, uh, led by Tipper Gore. Um, they had been campaigning as early as like 1984 against Prince's darling Nikki and things to like have music be rated, um, you know, just like films are rated and our TV is rated and things like that. They wanted to be a rating system for music because they thought that the explicit lyrics were harmful to children and they wanted to have a better way of identifying with the parents. Um, and so fast forward to like the early 90s, companies like Warner um, Music are being sued. Um, and this is like the Dolores Tucker, Calvin Butts era. Yeah. Because uh, people are saying that gangster rap is like detrimental to kids. Um, and Ice-T had just put out Cop Killer. Um, you know, Warner was under tremendous pressure because of that. They were a publicly traded company. And, um, and Electra is part of Warner, you know. Electra is part of Warner, which is where, um, you know, um, KMD was. was signed. Um, and so Warner at the time, like, they drop Ice-T and, and Cop Killer, they, they drop uh, Body Count. Um, 
and Death Row, um, and as part of Death Row, had also been on, on um, Warner in a Warner Music group in the system, um, and then yeah, moved to uh, they moved over to to UMG uh, again, part of that pressure. And so you're at a time where there there's heightened sensitivity to everything. It's almost like now, like with you know with social media, like in, in cancel culture. And KMD, uh, well, you take it over from here. They, they have yeah, so album cover. Yeah, go ahead. So KMD makes. Um, album called black bastards uh you know their first album mr hood i was just reading in brian coleman's book by by accounts it did sold between somewhere between 130 and 150,000 copies which you know is hard to do today but i i don't i think that that's important to say because it wasn't like kmd was this completely underground group they were buzzing the album did well it didn't recoup but from what i've read from dante and other people it had a higher budget you know, Sylvia Roan, Electra, that whole team, they said, hey, we'll give you another album. So they started making this album on a $200,000 budget, which by 1993 standards was not a ton of money. But, you know, they recorded in a whole bunch of different places. Pete Nice from Third Base is managing the group at the time, kind of getting them into studios, doing things like that. They make this album and, you know, thematically, because now we can listen to it. It's on DSPs. It's been, it's been released. You know, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of content that deals with racism and black identity on that album. On top of it, um, KMD since the early nineties, since their single various, you know, single artwork and, and, and um, promo photos and stuff like that, they'd use the Sambo character, you know, which is um, obviously repurposing a racist cartoon from well, the 1920s, 1930s. I don't know the exact years that, you know, of Sambo, but they, they kind of made it their own, which is not unlike what Basquiat did. I mean, his graffiti tag his, was Samo, which was a play on that as well. I mean, this is kind of like re, you know, taking something negative and flipping it. And as the album is, you know, at 98% done, um, tragedy strikes. So on April 23rd, 1993, Sub Rock. Well, well, even before that, let's like, let, even, you know, so the cover is not just a Sambo character, but in a noose, like hanging, you know? And, True. Um, there are executives at Warner, at Electra, specifically the label, which is an affiliate uh, or uh, a subdivision of, of Warner Music. Mm-hmm. Um, there are executives, uh, um, many of whom are Black, who are offended by the cover. And, um, you know, Dante is, is trying to defend it. He gets the opportunity with uh, Doom uh, to, to go and kind of like explain the vision for it. But ultimately, they, they decide that they're not going to put the album out. Yeah, and from what I've read, a big pressure in that situation was a Billboard article in 94 from Havelock Nelson. Yeah, um, that's right. And that's why I started to talk about what was happening in 93, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. Ultimately, the album doesn't come out. The single that we had mentioned earlier, What a Brother Know, you know, had a video, came out. I don't think it caught on fire, um, you know, so to speak. But Doom, in a in a really rare move, in '94, walks out of the Warner Building. You know, I think literally from what I've read, with the album in his possession. Yeah, yeah, with his masters and a paycheck. Okay. Right, right, yeah. right. So, but, but it, it, while this is happening, you were saying. I mean, it's important to note, and and I didn't realize that there was a year difference between these two things happening. April 23rd, 93 is what Brian Coleman's book says. Subrock, 19 years old at the time, is crossing the Long Island Expressway um, and is struck by a car and killed. And that year, in the weeks and months leading up to it, both 
Doom, you know, Zev Lovex, Daniel Dumal, and Subrock could each become fathers. Um, Doom is uh, two years older than Subrock, and it's interesting, you know, for a lot of years, one of the misnomers you'll hear is that they were twins. There's a story of, you know, their, their resemblance being one of the, you know, impetuses of Doom wearing the mask. They're actually not twins. Um, they're, they're two years apart, but from all accounts, from third base, from Dante, different people, they had a striking resemblance and they had a, an otherworldly um, chemistry where they could finish each other's sentences. And these guys were as close as two brothers can be. Um, you know, so this happens. And from what I've heard Doom say on the matter, you know, not only is he a young father, you know, he uh, is, you know, taking uh, a responsibility and a role in Sub's daughter's life. Um, so this is all happening as they're recording an album on a shoestring budget. Fast forward a few months and the album doesn't even come out, you know, yeah. so it is blow after blow after blow. And Doom has been, you know, had been very honest in interviews and the few that he did that financially, even though he left Electra with a check and with his album, I mean, he's he's used the word homeless numerous times. Um, and I don't take that lightly. I think that I think that Doom was extremely hard up um, by 94. And I can't imagine the pressure of having that happen and on top of it being a new parent and helping a grieving part of your family. Yeah. So just in a matter of years, in a matter of like five years, because I think Gasface came out like 89. Gasface is their first record. Um, first time they've ever been like, um, you know, heard publicly. Um, they parlay that into a record deal, have uh, two albums as KMD, um, sitting on an album that they're incredibly proud of, which, uh, you know, is full of social commentary, sonically incredible. Um, brother dies, get dropped from the label, can't put the album out, and financially in really, really dire straits at this point. Um, so now we're in like um, 95, 94, 95 or so, and Doom really kind of like falls into the background kind of like falls off yeah i mean you know and there's different accounts um people like to correct that he didn't really disappear but he bounces between you know new york atlanta virginia kind of just living and dooms described it as you know he described coming back to new york 96 97 um apparently in freeport long island you know and doom said you know I was damn near homeless, um, you know, kind of a no shower sort of situation. So, you know, picture a flop house, somebody's couch, whatever. Um, and he said, but I had a lot of time. So this guy, this creative, brilliant mind is sitting around listening to tons of jazz radio, you know, probably like an AM frequency and just living life, um, probably a very simple life and making trips into the city and reconnecting with some of the figures that had been there for him during the KMD years, which I think, you know, really, um, Stretch and Bob are, are key parts of that. Yeah. Um, Stretch, so, so oh, go ahead. Stretch and Bob. Like, yeah. Uh, so if you're in New York at that time in the nineties, they're on the Columbia radio station. I'm forgetting the call. KCR, it. right? KCR. Yeah. Um, and they have a show on from like, I think it's like one in the morning to five in the morning. Um, so you got to be super dedicated, you know, super devoted, like, but a lot of pause tapes were made, like, uh, like incredible pause tapes were made, um, you know, for a lot of people, you know, they know it, uh, one of the biggest things that come off of that is the Jay-Z, 
Big L freestyle session. But I mean, it's the home to so many things. And, um, you know, Stretch and Bob have put out a documentary which lays out that history. It's inspirational, it's, it's, it's informative, it's historical. But they are unquestionably kind of the gatekeepers for underground hip hop. And in a lot of ways, all of hip hop, because yeah. a lot of people who got their start there ended up becoming some of the biggest stars on the planet Nas, Eminem, Jay Z, you know, like Biggie. It goes on, Biggie, yeah. it goes on and on. Um, but Stretch and Bob, um become key players in doom's ascension um separately so yeah, yeah so you take it over from there. yeah i mean it's interesting too because as you know from the documentary um you know these guys were kind of drifting apart by the late 90s different tastes of music stretch you know produces on little kim's hardcore album if i'm not mistaken um you know they're not always together but doom um goes to stretch who has this house somewhere in in new york in an apartment filled with records and they had enough kinship and i really like what stretch told john caramanica of like he knew that this guy was hard up and like maybe just needed a place to chill but doom shows up with a sampler has access to all of these records and begins making a lot of the sketches of what became doomsday and stretch describes because i mean he was you know a top uh, club dj at the time coming in at five in the morning and seeing Daniel Dumal, you know, half asleep or, you know, snoring at the MP or whatever the, you know, machine he had going through records. And what Stretch said is so interesting is I had all of these records and what Doom gravitated towards for Doomsday wasn't, you know, the digging in the crates, like, yo, let me find this super obscure, like, loop or, or snare or something. He was grabbing a lot of DJ records, you know, Steely Dan, the scratches from, you know, Scott LaRock scratches on poetry, I believe. And, Quincy you know, Jones, like, yeah, uh, Sade. Yeah, like, yeah, Atlantic Star, just like crazy. Um, but again, it speaks to that, you know, genesis of of those parties and Doom's, you know, sensibilities musically. So whatever he takes, um, he ends up, you know, leaving stretches after kind of having safe harbor there. And, you know, Dead Bent, which which is, from what I understand, the first song um, Doom recorded that would make Doomsday gets play on Stretch and Bob's show. And Bob, in particular, takes so much interest in it um, that he offers to put it out. You know, he had created Fondalum Records, which, you know, you mentioned Raucous. I think Fondalum is such an important label. You know, you've got the Juggernauts, Megahertz, uh, Cenobites, which he had already put out, which was, you know, Cool Keith and Godfather Dawn's side project and he offers him an opportunity to put this music out which uh you know doom accepts so you're absolutely right with both of those guys it created the platform to truly and literally reinvent himself yeah so they press up the copies all vinyl like keeping it super purist um album sells out you know yeah. does, does reasonably well but they don't repress it uh, you know, but it's the it's the thing that like kind of launches Doom into um, into the the, the the atmosphere, and uh, you know it's the beginning of um, what will become one of the most uh, I think complex, um, you know, pure purely artistic uh, careers that we have seen in hip hop. You know. Um, Doom uh, is now liberated, you know, you hear a lot of talk about how, um, you know, Doom would kind of like sketch the framework 
for songs and Subrock would come in and polish it and finish it up. Uh, but Doom is now liberated uh, to just do what Doom does. And like a lot of like celebrated, it's, it's interesting to me that like the people who kind of endure or like have like a heightened reverence are the ones who um, aren't slaves to like the polish. You know, you mm-hmm. talk about like a Dilla, um, you know. Mad uh, Lib, yeah. Mad Lib, like, you know. And, and Doom is free to like just make music the way that he feels he should make it. You know, he said in that interview too that um, the Red Bull and the Mile that he likes to keep his samples. He likes to keep his samples as simple as possible to, to keep it as close to the actual record as possible. Even though he's chopping it differently and everything, he doesn't want to put effects and polish on it to make it sound different. Um, and so he's able to do that. Uh, with with his songs and um, you know um, and, and and using this this doom character. Um, well, what's so interesting too is is that album. You know, people praise its production, and obviously there's some really clever rhyme schemes on it. But it is you know this this term therapy is turned into such a cliche about people's albums, but it's truly therapeutic. You look at the the track Doomsday or the. Um, the track just the question mark which there was a video for and he's addressing the loss of his brother he in in places is you know seeming to touch on being rejected by the industry and coming back um you know it's 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 like yeah it's it's just a a phenomenal artistic interpretation of a really rough five years yeah yeah, and uh, you know, part of what makes him so appealing is the complexity of his rhyme style, you know, and it's complex because of, um, it's, it's, just, it's complex for as much as he doesn't do as what he does do. You know, a lot of times, and he talks about this, you know, he'll fill in a word, uh, and it'll be, you think you're, the word, you're going to know the word, but it'll be something expected. And it'll be after a pause or like, uh, you know, it'll be like a beat later. And he just had a really unorthodox rhyme style um, that was in a, way, a lot of ways like jazz. Like jazz is appealing because um, it breaks the traditional scales, uh, but still, it's still like, um, it's still part of the scale, but it, it, it approaches the scale in different ways. I'm not explaining that as artfully. I know exactly what you mean, though. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and Doom does the same thing. Like, you know, the human ear, we like repetition, but we like, like, modifications to the, within the framework of that repetition, like that, like, you know, it's like, it's like, um, like ear candy. Uh, it's, there's, there's a lot of music theory involved with it, and his rhyme style kind of fits that music theory. Yeah, I mean, there's so much improvisation and, and surprise. You're absolutely right. You'll listen to a Doom line and you expect it to be one thing. And he knows you do, and he hits you with another. Um, and then also just the compound schemes of, you know, where he would take a bar and it would just hit it three or four different times, like pinball um, with the rhyme. And I just, and his references were so succinct to the music. You know what I mean? Like, Doom grabbed from a certain type of like 1970s to early 90s culture, and he kept that in his punchlines and his similes, um, all of that. And it just, yeah. And, and also, I mean, you and I spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about MCs with great voices. Um, and it's wild to watch Doom's voice change from KMD. Like you hear it, but whereas Mr. Hood has kind of this like teenage innocence and this joy about it, you get into Black Bastards and it's a little bit more 
cynical and you can hear it. And by the time you get to Doomsday and beyond, it's got a gruffness. Like clearly this is somebody who's lived life in a way that probably not everyone has. And sonically, he puts together collages. You know, he, he uses a lot of vocal effects from cartoons and, and like old TV shows to convey messages. Um, you know, we talked about the juxtaposition between that, like the R&B samples and his his gruff, like uh, super complicated dense rhymes. Um, you know, he talks in the the Red Bull interview about like uh, there was a 1980s like radio show and you know if you start to think about things like uh, the adventures of grandmaster flash and the wheels of steel and the collages that flash uses that was a, a staple of hip-hop to kind of have these like random like you know vocals and things like that over like you know different like um like beats and things like that that was the inspiration for his entire production style and so he uses this throughout, like uh, throughout his career. Um, you know, he produced the vast majority, I think, all of like Operation Doomsday, um, and much of his material going forward. Um, of his solo catalog, what, what's your favorite album? Doomsday. I just, it's it's just the world I want to live in, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and that's truly of all of Doom's catalog, I feel that way about that album. Yeah. Yeah. I like I love Doomsday. Uh, it, it's probably a tie for me in the solo stuff between Doomsday and uh, Mmm Food. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love that. I love that album too. Uh, but you know, we'd be remiss in talking about Doom and not talking about the collabo albums that he had because he had a ton of collabo albums too that 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 helped to round out his catalog. So. Um, yeah, I know you, you're well steeped in these, so why don't you break down some of those problems? Yeah, I mean, you know, even before the albums, I mean, out of that world of reinvention, Doom brought a class with him. You know, I love the fact that he's created this universe, but sort of like The Simpsons or any good comic book, I'm not a comic book head, there's other characters. And I mean, out of it, you've got MF Grimm, you've got Count Base D, you've got, um, you know, Bob, you know, gets on wax and, and does what he does. And um signs of life you know there's on and on and on um but and and from what i understand of doom is he had this network of and i heard a lot of people even around the time that i spoke to doom that he was this guy you could only really reach him by phone even in the early 2000s wasn't like an email guy and you hear that in some of the interviews of just like who he was communicating with who was checking in on him um but he was also you know a um not a businessman but you know, Sean Price was like this too. Doom was about his hustle. And I feel like after the success of Doomsday, of course, there were opportunities to repress the album. But then there were all these labels that wanted to be in the MF Doom business. Um, And I don't know if it was the characters or it was a necessity out of contract or whatever, but he starts coming with these different projects. Like, you know, we started to talk about, but, um, you know, very early on, obviously the most, the biggest one is Mad Villain. Um, which, you know, you brought to my attention, I had forgotten that up until that point, Doom and Madlib had not met each other, right? Uh, yeah, that's what, it, yeah, yeah, he had not met Madlib uh, before that. In fact, he didn't even know about Madlib. Yeah. Um, it was Peanut Butter Wolf from Stone's Throw Records who connected the two of them um, and suggested that they work together. And so um, Doom came out to California um, like two weeks or something, right? Yeah, and, and Madlib had this house, uh, supposedly a really, uh, you know, incredible place. Um, it, it was like a mansion, uh, several rooms, and 
Doom says that, you know, even though they were together in the same physical space, they were rarely in the same room. Typically, Madlib would make the beat or, you know, Doom would be working on something and Doom would be listening to it and, you know, going over the rhyme schemes in his head in a separate room. And then um, they would come together and record in a room that was um, described as like a, a legit bomb uh, shelter, like, uh, you know, no windows, like, you know, fortified walls, the home, the home nine and they're, they're making these bombs inside the bomb shelter um but you know he and mad villain rarely communicated outside of that even in the same space and you know in, in the work they did subsequent to that it was the same thing where um but he said they also had a mind meld uh you know they, they were on the same frequency and even though they weren't communicating directly um, they they understood exactly where we, where each other was coming from. It's probably like that jazz thing you're talking about too. Especially you know Madlib is a jazz musician in my opinion, especially coming off of his father that they would communicate that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so out of that came Madville, which I think is one of the most acclaimed um, Doom projects of yeah. all of his entire catalog. One of my favorites too. You know, it's up there for with, sure. With the other two with me. Our readers love it. Yeah, and I mentioned, you know, when I mentioned that cast of characters, a lot of those guys, um, you know, appeared on the Monster Island Zars album, which was a side project in, in, in 2003, if I'm not mistaken, that Doom put out, which true to form was everyone had an alias, but it was his group, his community at the time. I think Grimm really played a, um, you know, and Grimm has his own crazy story and kind of came up under Cool G Rap for a time and you know, allegedly was around the death row scene. Um, but these two kind of industry misfits lead the way on this album. Doom supplied a lot of the beats. Um, that's an album that I've seen people talk about, you know, over the last two weeks. But yeah, I mean, he just kind of goes label to label, team to team and makes these collabos. Um, Mad Villainy being huge. And then he follows that up with Danger Doom linking up with Danger Mouse. And, you know, I, I hear, I don't hear that project come up a lot. I really liked it. I, I think I reviewed it at the time. Um, and that was at a time when, when, when Danger Mouse, you know, was, was making headlines, you know, for the Grey album. But what people forget is Danger Mouse um, is a producer that grabbed a lot of talented MCs that have been maybe overlooked. Like he's done a lot of stuff with the Artifacts um you know gemini the gifted one and he was somebody who had worked with doom i think bringing him into his own albums and they had a solid enough rapport to go and do that and if i'm not mistaken that's that album uh the cartoon network adult swim folks got involved in too yeah yeah and, and there was a complex story uh with that i know you you dug a lot into that so you want, you want to talk about that yeah i mean you know and and that <sighs> I'm not a comic book head, but I remember at that time watching Cartoon Network and Adult Swim, you know, with friends and they were really letting you know in different ways that they were down with hip hop. And I mean, that same group, you know, has a lot to do with the formation of Run the Jewels, you know, and, and Killer Mike's R.I.P. album. But, you know, they had kind of commissioned this project, um, Danger Mouse producing, Doom rhyming. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it 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 did really well at the time. I think I think Doom had this snowball effect by 03, 04, where all of a sudden, you know, people that were not hip hop heads were coming up to me talking about Doom. I mean, he had a true cult following um, that just still was building in real time. And, 
you know, we'll talk about unreleased recordings in a minute, but that relationship ultimately led to Adult Swim cutting a check allegedly for 45 grand to Doom of, hey, come back and make a solo album with us. And the beautiful thing is, is we have the rights to a lot of the cartoon stuff that you might want to sample. And we can speak a little bit to the mystique of Doom as we go, but um, kind of takes the check and goes gently into that good night. Um, Take the money and run. Yeah. Um, word to Steve yeah. Miller. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Player did a, a, an interview with Jason DeMarco, the senior vice president, uh, creative director uh, of Adult Swim. Um, excellent read. But yeah, he talks about that and how um, he loved Doom and his art- artistry and his, his creativity. But it was also that creativity and that mercurial nature that like made it very difficult to work with him on a business level. You know, talk about that. There's a traditional stuff of like, you know, being hard to kind of pin down times like he'd show up and be a few hours late and things like that. But um, but the bigger issue was, as you said, like not actually getting uh, what they paid for, you know. Um, um, and, you know, on top of that, uh, they had the... Um, that series was a uh, pocketbook rhymes. Um, uh, yeah. Rhyme book or something. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, More recently, that was in like uh, missing, missing, missing notebook rhymes. They had yes. a missing notebook rhymes series. Um, and yeah, there was a song that was just released uh, from doom. Uh, just like uh, there's an adult swim joint, uh, just like a month or so ago, which was amazing but not available on DSPs. We talked about it in a prior podcast. Um, yeah, with Flying Lotus, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Part, and Thundercat. And part of it is that, yeah. um, uh, you know, they had this this series they were doing with him, you know, as a way to kind of salvage that deal, I, I suppose. But they started getting the legal, legal trouble because they would get a song, they'd put it out, and then all of a sudden, like, people would be coming out of the woodwork saying, hey, that's our song. Yeah. Why are you putting it out? Um, and so Doom was just... Uh, he was being a villain in terms of like the, the business practices. Well, and I, I mean, over the last 20 years, especially as technology evolved, you and I saw that with Ambrosia for Heads. I mean, we would post a song and within hours it would get taken down on SoundCloud or YouTube or, you know, there was a Doom performance at South by Southwest and everybody tripped and was like, oh, this is new music. And every time we touch something with Doom, um, people that still remain close to him you know, would reach out to me with some corrections or be like, yo, take that down, you know, <laughs> and it, it made a headache in its time, but I know the fans loved it. Um, but yeah, Doom, I think that he took a lot of deals and there was even, you know, on the Danger Doom album, Ghostface Killer appears on a joint called The Mask, which is really good, you know, real one of my favorites from that album. And you know, Ghost ends up picking some Doom joints on, I believe, the Fishscale album. Um, and out of that, at the time, they did a Mass Appeal magazine cover together. Um, phenomenal, you know, like up there with Mass Appeal had Nas and Large Professor years later together. Just a phenomenal era of art direction. Um, but, you know, they were supposed to come with an album, uh, Doomstarks, that lived in infamy for years and years and years. And at one point, I had read a trusted source He's a billboard MTV, the like that in one of his last, you know, years at Def Jam that Jay-Z, you know, had picked that album. He had budgeted it because Ghost was already at Def Jam and Doom. I mean, even when Nas made his untitled album, he wanted to work with Doom. You started to have these A-list artists that were 
you know, recognizing the talent, both as a producer and as an MC and trying to bring him into the fold. Yeah, you know, often when an artist passes away, there is music uh, rumored to be in the vaults um, that people clamor for. Um, we've seen a tremendous amount of output from Prince yeah. over, over the last couple of years. Um, Tupac. Tupac, a ton. Um, a bunch of Sean Price yeah. music. Um, the new Five Dog album is coming supposedly um, in the next you know few weeks. Um, with Doom, uh, it sounds like there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, it may be complicated complications legally um, but going back to mad villainy um you know during that session and, and i'm not sure if it's subsequently but doom says that they recorded three to four albums worth of material <coughs> in fact um in a in, uh, interview with spin magazine which we covered um on, on afh uh, by will Gotsigan, um doom said if you heard them back to back it would sound like both of them are interchangeable um, with Mad Villain and all three of them, there's actually three or four of them by now. So it sounds like uh, there's a heat, there's a whole series of like Mad Villain albums, which you know, which come out like under the right circumstances. Yeah, I'd heard grumblings over the last year, you know, that Doom was doing things at a high level, you know, um, and I don't. I personally don't, you know, he obviously did stuff with um, Janeiro Jarrell, if I'm saying that correctly, and, and you know, Bishop Nero, like Doom, every three or five years, he finds a new, like, tribe, you know, and Doom did a really cool job um, kind of knighting a new group of MCs and producers, you know, last year he worked with Ural Droog, um, who I know is, you can just hear the influence of Doom in him, but I had heard, you know, um, that doom was making moves with some goats. And I also had been hearing from, you know, people that we finally would see a follow-up to Mad Villainy. And obviously since that album released, Mad Villain and Peanut Butter Wolf have parted ways. Um, there's probably a lot of red tape involved in that project, but, <clears throat> you know, similar to what's happened with Dilla. And it's so sad that you have, you know, two guys that work so closely with Mad Lib both passed away um, way too young. But I hope, uh, you know, that, that that art finds its way to the light so long as, you know, it's ready for public consumption, which, by what you read, Doom acted like it was ready to go. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, because his production style was so raw, like, uh, you know, probably wouldn't need that much polish in there because he probably would have intended to come out that way. You know, so. Yeah, and luckily, I mean, on the production side, uh, I think Doom did one joint on Mad Villainy. Mad Lib did the rest. They... They kind of did a Pete and CL flip, um, like the creator. But I would have to assume that, um, you know, with Mad Lib still being here and Mad Lib is, you know, uh, not a, I guess, yeah, you could say a perfectionist, even if he kind of operates on his own science. But um, luckily he's here to make whatever tweaks on the music side would need to be made. Yeah. And so we know that the missing notebook rhymes, songs that, were taken down are still out there. Um, potentially, they were parts of other projects that have been unreleased. Um, you know, in watching that that uh, Chairman Mao interview, Doom said he had it, and this is back in I think 2015. Back then, Doom said he had a disc record in the works uh, where uh, Victor Vaughn was going to be going at Doom. Um, so you know, maybe maybe that's out there, but you know, um, certainly the hope that 
you know, with this huge, huge loss, um, you know, his legacy will continue to live on through, uh, through new music. Yeah. When the Missing Rhyme Book series, you know, he revived KMD. And it was, I think, at that particular track, if I'm not mistaken, it was pulled was just Doom. But throughout the years, he had talked about bringing back that, that group. Um, and obviously, Subrock has passed. And in, in the conversation he had with Peter in 03, you know, he talked about Little Sai from Signs of Life, who people I think better know as John Robinson joining the fold. And I got to know John over the years, and he was one of the people, um, for a lot of years, Doom was in Atlanta, you know, um, somewhere in the late 90s, early 2000s, he relocated. And it's funny, he talks about um, why Atlanta was attractive to him. I think he could be off the grid. And obviously, you know, people like Eric Sermon, Too Short, you know, Atlanta has a history of being uh, DJ drama where hip hop artists go. I think the quality of life in many ways, not just financially, can be a little bit better. But one of the things, you know, that I have to say that's so interesting is over the last two weeks, I've tried to give people their space. But some of my friends over the years that were close to Doom, we've just been in touch with each other, checking in. And I'm amazed that so many people that had done work with doom and known him far better than I can ever say I did, or most still are in a shroud of mystery. You know, was he living overseas? Was he down in Atlanta? Was he doing this? Was he doing that? I mean, obviously people know the whole, um, you know, imposter of sending other people on stage and, and stuff even beyond the stage that doom was doing. But I kind of, for a guy who liked characters and narratives so much, it, somehow it's it's like a bit appropriate that we're left with such great music and still quite a few questions yeah you know i think he embedded a lot in his art you know you could hear that pain you could hear like um you know what his philosophy was you know um you know he talked about that a lot but he he was also intensely private like you know that's that's even in the announcement we didn't even know that he passed away until um you know two until, months yeah uh two months after the fact you know he he died on on, on halloween and we didn't hear about it until december 31st and so that's representative of uh, who he was you know um you know there's a a, a couple things um you know i want to read a quote from him about his rhyme style and then, uh, you know, and then also something that he was saying as advice and a question. So in his rhyme style, he said, I ain't going to be talking shit about the next dude or bragging about shit I got. I, I talk about, I talk broke shit. I talk about shit I don't got or things I'm striving for. Say you're speaking from a point of view where you're talking to yourself in maybe a sad mood. How do your tones come across? How can people feel what you're saying? Can they hear what you're saying? Are you well pronounced? Maybe you purposely were a little bit sloppy with it to bring the point across. Can you bring the point across and still get the, the rhyme points? It's like gymnastics on paper. And then that's how he approached um, his rhyme style. Like he was very much a word technician and a craftsman. But, you know, um, in listening to him, you know, in those Red Bull sessions, they always open it up for Q&A afterwards. And um, someone asked him for advice on, um, you know, moving forward in their career. And he just had these three words, follow your heart. Mm. You know, um, he's a guy who clearly, you know, followed his own muse and was true to his own artistic intent. 
And you can tell from the outpouring of love and respect and the pain that we saw like on the Facebook community, Instagram, and, and like all over the hip hop universe that this guy, um, even though he wasn't the biggest selling artist, was clearly one of the most influential artists in the last 20 years. Um, and that's a legacy that we're going to be yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, I, the outpouring of love, I, I feel that 2021 began with a cloud for a lot of people. And um, even before the events this week, and I feel that doom is that cloud. And I know Spotify told me in 2018 that my most listened to artist was Mad Villain. I don't remember it that way, but I can still say that to say I've listened to more doom in the last, um, you know, week and a half and KMD and third base and all of all of the family tree that I have in a long time. And my appreciation just continues to build. Right. So, you know, as we said at the top, Doom was not the only loss that week. Um, we lost um, John Fletcher, um, who better known as Ecstasy of Houdini. Uh, Houdini was incredibly important to me. Uh, I remember buying the Escape uh, cassette in San Francisco, I think it was 1983, um, when it dropped, um, in Tower Records. Um, um, actually, it was uh, in, in Los Angeles, in Tower Records. Um, it's the first time I've been at the Tower Records, any Tower Records, and to go to that one in L.A. was incredible. And um, you know, Houdini was one of my favorite artists back then. You know, Run DMC, obviously, were incredible we talk about polish, Houdini were, were like the, the polish side, you know, uh, pristine production, um, you know, synthesizers, like big R&B, but ecstasy was that dude who like, you know, as soon as he just started spitting, like his voice just penetrated and cut through like five minutes of funk and freaks come out at night and like uh, friends, like he was that like, you just felt his voice when it came out, you know, and so... For me, that was a huge loss, um, you know, um, not not that old. Um, and then same thing for uh, Shabadu, um, also known as Ozone. I remember seeing Breaking in a theater when it came out, you know, and literally I, I made a pact with myself and I kept this up for probably about 20 years to watch Breaking at least once a year, every year. Uh, so I've seen Breaking probably like 40, 50 times. Um, and Turbo, you know, um, uh, Boogaloo Shrimp, Michael Boogaloo Shrimp Chambers is the one who often gets a lot of the love because, you know, his, his uh, ticking and like, uh, like uh, Boogaloo was just like unbelievable. That, that broom scene is still one that like gets people riled up and to lose Shabadu um, in a year or six months before uh, breaking is going to hit the Olympics is like... Um, uh, a real tragedy because he's a guy who uh, more than almost anyone helped to put it on the mainstream's uh, radar, you know, and authorize it and make it a global thing. Um, there's a documentary out there called Breaking and Entering. Um, it's before Breaking and it features all of the players in Breaking, um, you know, uh, Shabadu, um, Google Shrimp, Ice-T is in a prominent mm. It's interesting because Ice-T is talking a lot about like doing things for the community and like, you know, so, so upstanding and like how there's too, too many detrimental, like, you know, messages out there and everything. It's, it's wild to yeah. see, uh, in contrast to like, you know, what his, his rap became. Um, but it's, you can see it on YouTube. 
Um, it's a it's a great look, and there's this one part where Shabadoo, you know, comes and he, he explains how to like lock and everything, and like you know, he breaks down that like it came from a Soul Train dancer in in in, in this episode and so forth. Uh, he went on a choreograph for for lots of people. I think he danced with Janet Jackson, Madonna. Um, just a real real talent, man. So um, so big losses for hip hop, but again, man, these 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 artists, uh, all of them. You know, have lots of recorded material that will preserve their legacy and influence people from from multiple generations. Yeah, and I mean that's that's the one bittersweet part out of it is you know, hopefully there's greater attention. I think that we're living in a time of just content, 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 and it's not until somebody's not making content anymore that we can sometimes stop and really appreciate. And I think that applies across mediums. And um, yeah, I. I I didn't live through the Houdini era, but that one, that one struck me because I often think Houdini goes unsung for their Brooklyn history. You know, I'd always think that Larry Smith is one of the goats of, of production that is often forgotten. And he supplied a lot of their music, um, the songs that we remember. And I actually went to college with ecstasy's daughter. I didn't know her, but my best friend did and, um, does. And yeah, just, just, um, just really, really sad to hear that. And, you know, one of the things I'm proud of, not to make it about us, but with the AFH legacy is when we did, you know, finding the GOAT MC by virtue of having your hip hop experience, you know, outside of the group, we had ecstasy in there, you know, as, and, you know, I love De La Soul and I often feel that, you know, Dave and Poss are overlooked because they're really guys connected to a group. Um, that never really went off on their own too, too much. And certainly true of Houdini too, because a lot of people know Houdini, but don't know the name Ecstasy. And I hope out of the ensuing tributes and recognition that people really see what a pioneer he was. And, you know, um, there was a lot of talent under that hat. Yeah, I mean, beyond the musical influence directly, um, Houdini, you know, you go back and look at that um, Freeze Come at Night, Freeze Come Out at Night video. Uh, and you'll see UTFO like as the background dancers, and uh, you know Young Jermaine Dupree is in there too. Um, yeah. They had a lot of impact, man. So, yeah, rest in peace to, to all these these folks that we lost. Um, we had a scare this week too. You know, Dr. Dre had a brain aneurysm, and um, for those who remember, you know, um, for me I was nervous because it was eerily similar to like the John. Um, um, the John, um, oh man, I just lose his name. Um, single the John Singleton, um, yeah, you know, situation where yeah. John had a stroke and, um, you know, seemed to be okay, and then, like, you know, hours later passed away. Uh, but so far, it seems like Bray is okay. Um, he made a statement from the hospital. Um, you know, and so it seems like it, but like you just, just a reminder, man, you just never know. And so, uh, it's one of the things I love about Drink Champs and you know, wanting to celebrate people while they're here and giving their flowers. And I think that Dr. Dre has certainly received his share of acclaim, um, you know, publicly, um, and privately, I'm sure. But yeah, uh, that was a scary one, too. Yeah, absolutely. When, yeah, when I saw that on Monday, um, Phew, yeah, I just, uh, I'm still very much reeling from, you know, the other passings. And it's weird. It's, it, 
when my grandmother passed away, I didn't feel it at first. And then weeks later it hit me and, you know, the news of doom obviously was on new year's Eve and I, it changed the tone of the rest of my day. Um, I got a text from our friend Richie at rhyme sayers and, but I have to say that, you know, here we are more than a week later, I've felt it more in the last three or four days than I did initially. And, uh, yeah, I hope 2021 is a year of uh, positivity and, and good health uh, for all, but especially in the hip hop community, because it's been a hard few weeks. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so, man. I, you know, despite all the craziness of the week, uh, you know, I feel positive, I feel optimistic, you know, and uh, yeah, so um, one other thing I want to touch on, uh, just on the new music tip. Uh, so Griselda. Um, released a project. You want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, you and I, a few months back, um, you know, Griselda's moving into film, uh, I think kind of following the uh, No Limit, Who Bangin', Three Six Mafia, you know, like that 90s when rappers would get together and make a movie that wasn't trying to win any Oscars, but was trying to build an extension of their musical movement and hopefully put a few talented individuals on. You know, people forget that Kevin Hart, you know, one of his first film appearances was, you know, in a Dame Dash movie. Um, Paper Soldiers, I think. Uh, but yeah, Griselda's keeping that tradition alive and they've made a film called Conflicted, which I believe drops next week. But they released the soundtrack a week early. Um, it's got all the usual suspects with Griselda, you know, Benny, Conway, Gunn, Armani Caesar. Um, but they also uh, tapped a few of you know, the affiliates in their circle. Um, Ransom, you know, who folks may remember, you know, from, you know, his association with Stack Bundles and Joe Budden, you know, Ransom had an incredible 2020, um, releasing very DIY albums, like a series of them. And one of the, he was one of the artists that I think folks criticized AFH, you and I, for not putting in our year end list. And I listened to a lot of Ransom this year. It's dope to see him on there. Um, Lloyd Banks is on there. It's not Derringer uh, production, but uh, Lloyd on his own. And a lot of people have said that Lloyd would be um, a really good addition to Griselda, sort of like what Boldy James was last year. Um, so maybe more on that to come. And uh, my favorite joint on there is, is um, it's got Smoke Dizza and Wale on it. And uh, the name I'm going to tell you right now is, uh, this is on the tip of my it's called the hurt business with gun Dizza, and wale and um just camouflage monk produced the beat and he's been working with them for years and um that's just the joint so we'll have to check out the movie because maybe maybe it maybe it's great too right right um all right so cool man so um song of the week man i'm gonna give it up to kmd uh you told me before we started taping that my voice sounded like i was hungover <laughs> so i'm gonna go with sweet premium wine one of uh my favorite kmd joints and just a very uh whimsical happy time for the authors of love x right right and for me i'm gonna go with raid my vision mm. you know um just, you know, I spent a lot of time with that album over the last week or so, and that one, like, uh, is, uh, there's so many gems, but, like, that one is speaking to me, but, so, Ray just got one, so, cool, all okay. right, man, well, to uh, bigger and brighter days ahead, and, uh, yeah, man, um, looking forward to it. Absolutely.